Yeah, my name's John. Um, I saw this thing on Twitter the other day, and it's a way to introduce yourself to people who uh, might not know too much about you. Pardon me. And it's like, the question is, what three things could you talk about for 30 minutes without any preparation? So for me, the three things that I could talk about for 30 minutes without any preparation are themes of fatherhood in the Star Wars universe. I could talk probably 45 on that one. The 2005 Ashes series, definitely not the one that's just happened. We'll leave that one out of it. And then um, probably the third one that I could speak about unprompted is probably probably something to do with guitars, but I'll, I'll come to that another time. But the good news is I have spent some time preparing for the next half hour, so that's good news. Um, I'm going to be kicking off this series. We're going to be talking and walking our way through the Sermon on the Mount over the next few months. Um, and there it is, with the lovely sort of Deathly Hallows vibe thing going on there at the top. Um, you'll see that take shape over the weeks as we go. Um, and back at the end of last term, Sam suggested that we, um, that we walk through this, um, this brilliant and beautiful passage of scripture together. And my heart leapt. I don't know about anyone else. And we got together, <clears throat> a few of us, some of the faces you're going to see over the next um, few weeks and months up here and had a brilliant time um, talking about what we're going to talk about. I love talking about conversation. Talking about talking is good fun. So, But I got really excited again for all that the Lord is going to do with this church community as we look at his words. So um, just to give you a bit of, of context to so the Sermon on the Mount, you've probably heard of it, even if you've not been to a church ever before. You'll probably be aware of some of the things in it. Um, you can find it in the Bible. It's in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Um, there's another Sermon on the Plain in, in the book of Luke that's a little bit different, covers some of the same stuff, but um, a lot of what's in the Sermon on the Mount is unique to the book of Matthew. Um, you know, and it, it, Sermon on the Mount is widely considered to be one of the most influential and iconic sermons given by Jesus in the Gospels. It's got loads of memorable bits Stuff like the Beatitudes, stuff about salt and light, um, stuff about uh, turning the other cheek, loving your enemies. It's got the Lord's Prayer in there. It's got asking, seeking and knocking and it even finishes with this classic story about the wise man who built his house upon a rock. Some of you know a song about that. Um, you know, and, and some, of those are, some of those phrases have found their way into even wider culture, like turning the other cheek. Um, like, in the Lord's Prayer, is like, it's ubiquitous. Even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard of the Lord's Prayer. So you will be familiar with a lot of the things that we're going to talk about over the coming weeks. But just to step back a bit, where does this sit in the context of this book, in the context of, of this Bible? Well, I don't want to insult anyone in the room, but I'm just going to assume that you know nothing about this book, so I'm going to give you a quick tour through the beginning to at least where we get to in Matthew. Um, so Matthew is part of what we call the New Testament of the Bible. So this book, cut it about two-thirds of the way in. The first two-thirds is the Old Testament. The last third is the New Testament. And the events described in the Old Testament are sometimes called the Hebrew Bible. They're the sacred scriptures of the Jewish religion. 
um, they, they describe events maybe from about 1,500 years before to about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And if you ask me to sum up the Old Testament in kind of one sentence, I'll tell you that it says the world needs a savior and God intends to be that savior and he's going to do it through a people called Israel. And Israel spends the next 400 years trying to figure out what that means. Like there's a lot of writing from that time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not in the book we call the Bible, but you can find it. It's out there. And there's a lot of discussion as to what is this saviour going to look like? Is he going to be a king like David? Is he going to be a priest and a prophet like Moses or Elijah or any of the high priests like Aaron? This is the atmosphere that Jesus is born into. So in first century Palestine, under Roman occupation, the Jewish people are expecting God to send them a saviour. Someone who's going to lead them to freedom. And in the New Testament, Jesus shows up. And Jesus is the saviour that God has promised. He's not just someone sent by God, but he happens to be God as well. He's this hard to explain, hard to understand, crazy collision of, of God and man in one person. And Jesus says, hey, All these scriptures, all these stories, they're pointing to me. It's all about me. I'm the fulfillment of all those promises. And the New Testament records the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And all of that saves the world from sin and decay and death. And then we get a bunch of letters from guys with names like Paul and Peter and John trying to figure out what it all means and how do we live in response to that. And all of it is written within the first few decades of Jesus' life on earth. And Matthew, Matthew is the first book of this New Testament. Um, there's not necessarily um, a particularly good reason why it's first. It's probably like the most quoted, most used gospel in the early church. We don't think it was the earliest written. We think that honor belongs to Mark. Um, but Matthew is the first in here. So it's right at the start of this New Testament. And all four of these Gospels, we have four of them. Matthew, I've talked about Mark, I've talked about Luke. There's another good one in there called John. Um, John's a little bit different. He's kind of out on his own, doing his own thing. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call them the synoptic Gospels because they take the same view. They describe a lot of the same events. Most of what you find in Mark is described in Matthew and Luke, and then they've got some extra stuff and then some stuff that's unique to each of them as well. But they all take very much the same view of events. Jesus is born. He lives. He meets a bunch of people. He does some amazing things. He says some brilliant things. He dies and then is raised to life again. So in Matthew, we're actually never given the name of the author in the book of Matthew. Just thought you might want to know that. It's church tradition that we call it the Gospel of Matthew. Um, although I don't see any reason to have to keep referring to the author of Matthew, so I'm just going to talk about Matthew, if that's all right. But just so we know, that's where we are. Um, and Matthew's Gospel has got this very intentional structure. So it starts with an introduction and ends 
with an epic conclusion. So in the introduction, we get the nativity story. We get Jesus' genealogy. So a story of the people that Jesus is descended from. The story that a few weeks ago we were all talking about at Christmas, of how Mary gave birth to Jesus and how some wise men came to see him. And then that's the introduction. And at the end, we get Jesus' death on the cross. We get his burial we get his resurrection, we get his ascension back into heaven. But in between, sort of the bulk of the book of Matthew, there are these five sections. And they all start with Jesus doing some stuff. They all start with some narrative, some story. Jesus meets some people, he might heal some people. And then each of those sections ends with some discourse, some words from Jesus. And if you want a really beautifully laid out version of that structure, go check out the Bible Project's Read Scripture on Matthew. Beautiful drawings. You'll get loads out of it. It'll take about eight minutes of your time. Go do that when you get home. So, But we've got these five blocks of teaching, and the Sermon on the Mount is this first bit of teaching. And it's kind of important that there are five blocks in the book of Matthew, because Matthew has a particular agenda, believe it or not. Matthew is a very great pain to point out that Jesus is in this Jewish heritage. Matthew is especially concerned with the Jewishness of Jesus. In particular, he's keen to point out that Jesus is like David and he's like Moses, and that he's a prophet like Elijah too. You know, Matthew's genealogy, where Luke starts his genealogy, way back at Adam, because he's the first person. Luke just wants you to know that Jesus is a human being like you. Matthew starts his genealogy with Abraham, who's the father of the Israelites, because he actually wants you to know that Jesus is a Jew. And all the way through Matthew, there's all these different, like, interesting, like, parallels with the Old Testament. There's all these sort of quotes or echoes of the Hebrew scriptures. And not least with the life of Moses. Um, If you're familiar with the story of Moses, you might have seen the Prince of Egypt at some point in your life. Um, Moses spent his childhood down in Egypt. Jesus spent his childhood down in Egypt. Um, Moses went up on a mountain to receive the law of the Lord. And Jesus does his first set of teaching on top of this mountain. And mountains are really important because in the Jewish mind, they are one of the places that heaven and earth overlap. They're together in the same place. Heaven is the place where God lives and here are all us people here on earth. And up on the mountain, that's a place where heaven and earth overlap and God and his people are together. So it's really important that this happens up on a mountain. And Moses, again, according to popular tradition, wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law. And there are these five sections of teaching from Jesus in the book of Matthew. He's kind of screaming at us, You can trust this guy because he's like Moses, but he's even better. He's one greater than Moses. 
You know, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It's just like Exodus 19. It says this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. According to people smarter than me, in Greek, those are exactly the same words that are used in Exodus 19. He went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And I think it's just, it's really interesting to me that Jesus went up and his disciples followed. Like they had to choose to go and follow him up that mountain. Um, and today I hope, I hope that like me, if you want to come and sit at Jesus' feet together and hear what he's got to say. Um, and like I said, the Sermon on the Mount is, is one of those things that people have talked a lot about over the last 2,000 years of Christian history, of Christian thought and writing. A lot's been said and written about it over the centuries. So who on earth are we to try and have something to say about it, if we're honest? So what are some greater minds than ours? What have they had to say about it? So some people have read the Sermon on the Mount as a new set of laws that Jesus is giving us, a new set of rules to follow, right? Because Moses, he went up on the mountain and said, bash, here are a load of rules that you need to follow, 613 of them, if you want to count them. And this is a pretty natural interpretation, right, of, of what it says. Because if we're thinking, yep, Jesus is like Moses, Moses gives the law, Jesus gives a new law. Um, this is what St. Augustine said about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if anyone will piously and soberly consider the sermon which our Lord Jesus Christ spoke on the Mount, as we read it in the Gospel according to Matthew, I think that he will find in it, so far as regards the highest morals, the perfect standard of the Christian life. Now, St. Augustine, just in case you didn't know, he was around in the 4th and 5th centuries. Um, he was from North Africa. He was a bishop and theologian, one of the most influential theologians out of church history, pretty much invented the um, the the doctrine of original sin, um, wrote a book called The City of God that's still amazing. Um, St. Augustine, he was an influential guy. And some, actually, some people actually go even further than Augustine went. So he said, hey, look, this is the perfect standard of the Christian life. Um, the great reformer Martin Luther, he said that Jesus actually didn't give us this law because he intends us to keep it. Because this standard isn't attainable by us. It's just there to make you realize how much you need God's grace. However, this doesn't strike me as something that Jesus would do, if I'm honest, Martin Luther. Thank you for the Reformation. But when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, I think we'll disagree. I don't think Jesus would say things just to point out how bad you are. This is an invitation by Jesus. It's not meant to make you feel like you'll never live up. You know, if we're just doomed to failure, why bother? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying to us. And actually, some people have gone possibly even one step further than that and said the Sermon on the Mount, we don't even need to think about it for today because it's the standard that Jesus is laying out for some end time, far off kingdom, after he's come back and made all things new. Once he's brought heaven and earth together, once and for all, 
We don't even need to think about this stuff because that's just what's going to happen then. And again, I think this is just a way of getting us off the hook of actually applying ourselves and wrestling with what Jesus is actually saying. But some of those ideals, some of those ideas are kind of understandable. You know, Matthew 5:48, Jesus says, "Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect." And perfection's a pretty high standard. Um, and I don't suppose myself a Bible translator, but I do think this is a bit of misdirection to interpret this word as perfect. Um, I don't think there's any Bible translators out there trying to do a bad job and discourage you. I think everyone's doing the best with what they've got. But the word that's translated perfect here, teleoi and teleos, they're perhaps better understood as completeness and wholeness or even maturity. They're derived from the word telos, which means end goal. So it's about us reaching our destination and our potential in God not some standard that we can't live up to. You know, the message in translation has got an interesting paraphrase of this. Eugene Peterson translates Jesus' words here just to say, grow up. Grow up and be who God's inviting you to be. And that's the process here. We might not get everything right, but if we're on that journey towards wholeness, to completeness, we've made an amazing start. You see, I think the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to a life that is made possible with Jesus. Dallas Willard, who you'll probably hear quoted quite a a lot over the next few months, he wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy, which unpacks the Sermon on the Mount. And he said this, The Sermon on the Mount is a concise statement of Jesus' teachings on how to actually live in the reality of God's present kingdom available to us from the very space surrounding our bodies. How to actually live in the reality of God's present kingdom available to us. I love that. It's available. There's an invitation to live this kind of kingdom life now, not in a future far off time, but in our day-to-day lives. And Willard goes on to say, that Jesus is essentially addressing two questions that all of us on some level have got. You know, what is the good life? And what does it mean to be a good person? What's the good life and what does it mean to be a good person? And the good news is that we're not on our own in this because we can't separate the Sermon on the Mount from the closing chapters of Matthew's gospel that I talked about, when Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, he descended to the dead, but on the third day he rose again. Because Jesus broke the power of sin that kept us enslaved. He opened the door to walking with God. He fixed what was broken in humanity by his death and his resurrection and restored us to relationship with our creator. And then he sent his spirit to empower us and produce this good fruit in our lives. See, we're not saved by the good life, but we are saved for it. We're not saved by being good people, but we are saved to be good people. And it's all possible because of what Jesus has done. 
It's all possible because of what Jesus has done. I think that is the thrust of every moral and ethical teaching in the New Testament. We don't strive for a godly life to earn God's love, but because we are so loved, because we are so cherished, and because we are paid for at such a high price, it only makes sense to live in response to that, like we were singing. And as we read these words of Jesus, like, who doesn't want to live the kind of life that he describes? One that's free from anger, one that's free from lust, one that's free from the need to have revenge, one that's, needs, one that's free from judgment and is full of forgiveness. A life that sees even the people that oppose you as people to be loved and not hated. A life free from worry. A life free from being concerned about what comes next. A life full of good fruit. A life that is built upon a rock that when storms come, we can endure them and not fall flat. That's the life I want. I don't know about you. It's the life we're saved for. It's a taste of the age that's to come. But it's in the here and now. So what are the key themes? What are the conversations we're going to be having as we go along this journey together? Well, like I said, we're going to be looking at these teachings of Jesus as an invitation to the good life that he offers because of who we already are in him. And we're going to try and keep that in mind. The Sermon on the Mount is given to us by Matthew in the context of everything else that Matthew says and everything else in the Bible. It makes sense in the place that it is. And I think one of Jesus' primary concerns is that our internal world and our external world would be consistent with one another. There's a lot of attention in these chapters paid to our heart and our mind, to our motivation, to our driving forces. You know, it's like Jesus knows that these are the determining factors of the kind of people that we're going to become. And he's after consistency, I think. As I read through the Sermon on the Mount, the word hypocrite, like, jumped out at me. It's in there four times. You know, a hypocrite is someone whose words don't match their actions. And Jesus calls out hypocrites another 13 times in the rest of the gospel stories. He's not just after people who have got all the words. He's not even after people that even do the right stuff. He's after people whose hearts are fully turned to him. You know, through the biblical narrative, God has been looking for people whose hearts are turned to him. He gave Israel the law on tablets of stone. But he said, do you know what? I really want to write it on their hearts. Those are the people I'm looking for. He doesn't want you to just be good at remembering a list of instructions, but he wants you to think and feel and reason like him. And you're then prepared to put it into action. And I think the Sermon on the Mount has got a lot to say about our internal world making its way out into our actions and into our words. So we're going to be asking ourselves some key questions. First question we're going to ask ourselves is, how is our heart? That's going to be the key question as we go through chapter five. What's going on inside of us? You know, we start off with the Beatitudes. Are we going to be meek people? Are we going to be those that hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice? 
And we'll dive into what Jesus says about the heart when it comes to anger and murder and lust and sexual immorality and how we respond to our enemies and the truthfulness of our words. And then we're going to ask in chapter 6, what's driving us? What drives us to pray, to fast, to give? Is it about appearances? Is it about doing the right thing? Or is it about being seen by a Father in heaven? Are we living for earthly treasures or heavenly ones? And do we think those heavenly ones are reserved for some far off day or are they about the here and now as well? And the centerpiece to all of this in chapter six is the Lord's Prayer. We're going to spend time on, on Super Sunday as a whole church family, all together, all ages together, thinking about how we get this brilliant prayer that Jesus gave us into our lives every day how it can make sense for us in 2022. And then finally, as we go into chapter seven, we're going to ask, who are we choosing? We're choosing ourselves or we're choosing others. Is it my way or is it Jesus' way? Am I going to choose to be a person who lives a fruitful life, full of the good things that Jesus wants to do in me? Or am I just going to do it my way? Before we get into the detail of those things, I actually want us to skip to the end of the story, skip to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Because, and I think this is legitimate, because Jesus' words here flow as a whole. Like, Matthew didn't st- structure the Sermon on the Mount to be read as sound bites in isolation, just a few nice memory verses. This thing flows and moves together as a whole. So I think, to my mind at least, if we're going to think about this thing as a whole, it's totally legit to start at the end, if that's all right. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. You've probably heard this story. But this is Jesus closing out this sermon. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus finished saying these things, The crowd were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. So Jesus gives us this picture of two builders, one wise and one foolish. One who builds on the rock and one who builds on the sand. One whose house withstands the storm and one whose house falls flat. And the difference It's not because they were both sat at Jesus' feet listening to him. It's because the wise builder put Jesus' words into practice. He was the one that took action on what he heard. You know, this is the warning that's repeated in both the Old and New Testaments, but most notably in the book of James. And also, side note, James is fascinating. The amount of the Sermon on the Mount that appears in the book of James is crazy. If you Google that, 
like James, Sermon on the Mount, Parallels, you have at least 10 minutes of really interesting reading. At least it was for me. Um, but this one parallel I want to pull out is James 1, 22 to 25. James also is just a bit more blunt than Jesus, if we're honest. He's like, spade is a spade. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. He's like, blunt, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do so uh, does not do what it says. It's like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. You know, mirrors were actually quite expensive and not very common in the first century. You know, and to be honest, they probably weren't even that clear. So it is quite conceivable that someone could go quite a long time between seeing their own reflection. It's not like, I don't know about your house. In our house, it's hard to get out the door without seeing yourself in a mirror a few times. And then not to mention the rise of selfies and uh, seeing your photo plastered everywhere. But in the first century, it was incredibly uncommon to actually see yourself. But anyway. But does, James does say immediately forgets what they look like, right? You know, and I'm not wishing to elevate any words that anyone shares from this, I was going to say stage, but it's not really a stage, is it? <laughs> from this um, bit of the floor. I'm not wishing to elevate any words over this microphone to be alongside the words of Jesus. But I do believe that as we listen to Jesus together and discern his will as a community, gathered around the scripture and listening to the spirit, I do believe Jesus will speak to us and we'll hear his words together. Like I want us to look intently into this perfect law, this complete, this fulfilled, fulfilled, this achieving its intended purpose law and find the freedom that Jesus offers us in it. But to do that, we can't be content to simply be people that hear the word. What we read in here has to change us, not just tickle our ears. It's no good just to make a mental agreement with Jesus and think, yes, I can get on board with that, but then carry on with the same lifestyle. Otherwise, we're being those hypocrites that Jesus warns us about. And you might be thinking, but hold on a second, John. A minute ago, you were talking about the importance of our internal world. Isn't that the place to start, right? Why this emphasis on doing stuff if we just need to be changed on the inside? To which I would say, yes, you're right. But part of the process of being transformed on the inside is by putting into practice what we know to be right. As human beings, our internal world and our external actions are more closely knitted together than we like to think. You know, we can talk about ourselves as bipartite or tripartite people, people in two or three parts, maybe made of body and soul and maybe even a spirit in there. But these are just categories to help us understand how things work. Like we are majestically complex creations whose constituent parts can't just be put into boxes. Like, when we face a physical threat, we get emotionally, like, 
our emotions tell us something, don't they? Like we're not just like this meat computer being born about <laughs> by a body, are we? Like we're intrinsically linked. All these things overlap. Our behavior in one area of our life is going to affect the way we think about another area of life. All these things are interlinked. You know, think about the way that our mental health affects our physical well-being. And I'm not saying that we fake it till we make it either. But putting into action what we know to be right and having a healthy expectation that our feelings are going to catch up with us at some point, I think is what we need to do. We all have those mornings when we don't want to get out of bed, but, but we do. If we're purely led by our feelings and all this stuff, we'll never make any progress. So we're going for this on all fronts. Right? We're going to invite Jesus through his Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts and minds. But in partnership with that, we need to put Jesus' words into action. You know, some days it'll feel like more of one than the other. But it's not a choice between the two. You know, and as we walk through the series we're going to be giving you some practical tools, some ways that we can apply this stuff together. And some weeks it'll be small, and some weeks it'll feel easy, and other weeks it'll feel a bit more of a challenge. And I believe that you're in this room or you're watching online because you want to change. You want to be like Jesus. But if you're anything like me, a lot of the time you just need some help knowing where to start. You know, I think we can sit here and make an agreement with what's being said a lot of the time. But the challenge comes in making a difference to the way we live. You know, and there are so many things competing for our attention that a 30-odd minute message on a Sunday, especially on a Sunday afternoon, um, is going to be so easily squeezed out of our heads by the other distractions of the day, you know, however valid those distractions might be. And no matter how much we might agree, be convicted by or inspired by what we hear at church, unless we take steps to make it part of our lives, it's just gone like vapor again. It's so easy. It's happened to me so much of my life. I've been in a lot of church services. Like a lot. Um, and, that, and the number of times it makes a practical difference in my life. I want to see, see that number come up way more in proportion with the number of times I come to church. So we want to take that challenge seriously, to actually put tools in your hands to help you act on what you've heard, to help you not be a hypocrite. I mean, you might entirely disagree with what's said, in which case, feel free to not put anything into action. Just give you that disclaimer. But I want to build my life upon the rock of Jesus. So this week's, let's call it a practice or homework, if you prefer that vibe, but you probably don't want homework. You want a practice to put into practice. Um, Nick that from John Mark Comer. Um, I want you, I want us to begin to get familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. So it's in Matthew 5 to 7. I want you to read it a few times this week, if I can be so bold as to ask you to do that. It's going to take you less than 10 minutes. I timed myself the other day, it was 8. That's not a challenge. <laughs> but if you read it faster than that, congratulations. Maybe read a bit slower and take it in next time. Um, I want you to read the Sermon on the Mount a few times this week. Maybe even try a few different translations. If you don't know how to look at different translations, maybe head to Bible Gateway 
that will help you out, find you some different translations. Read it in a kind of standard translation like the NIV or an ESV. Maybe read it in a more paraphrased version. Like I said, I really like the message. It helps me understand things in a different way. You can find all that on the internet. Because like I said earlier, everything we're going to talk about in the coming weeks from the Sermon on the Mount has to be found within the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, reading a lengthier passage of Scripture, reading 10 whole minutes of Scripture, might actually feel a bit unfamiliar for you, especially if you've grown up in a church tradition where the emphasis is on like a devotional type reading. Maybe reading a couple of verses at a time and really letting the Lord speak to you about that. And I think that's really important. Like, I do that, and I've, I do that as part of my Bible reading. And I think that's really important. But I think we also need to know the full story, the full sweep of Scripture, because we'll see patterns and recurring themes that we wouldn't otherwise see. You know, I once heard um, a guest speaker we had many years ago, a guy called Randall Worley, share an illustration from this wise and foolish builder. And he talked about how if we see Jesus' words as the rock that we're building on, he said, what else is sand apart from tiny bits of rock? Like, and if we're just going to take tiny bits of the rock at the time, we're not going to be able to build on it. Like, we need to know the whole story, right? I don't think that's necessarily what Jesus was saying, but I think it's a really helpful way for us to think about understanding the full story of Scripture not just the little bits that make us feel good and that we like. So I hope that a few points this week you can find 10 minutes alongside or maybe instead of whatever your own pattern of study and your rhythm of reading scripture is. And if you don't have one, this is a great place to start. I've just given you an idea that maybe you didn't have when you walked in this room. But as we start this journey together, I want to pray for us. I want to pray that we allow Jesus to move in our hearts and our minds and that we will partner with him, with our hands and our feet and our words and our actions to be the people that he invites us to be. So would you stand with me? I want to pray for you. And the band can come back up and Lucy's going to come and help us close out in just a second. And maybe you're someone that's been to church a lot of your life, or maybe you're here for the first time. And maybe like me, you look back at all those times you stood in a room with a bunch of other people and heard a deeply inspiring message. But then perhaps you went home and nothing changed. I've been that person a lot of times. But I'm not content to be like that anymore. I want my life to change. I want to look like Jesus. I want to live the life of freedom and wholeness that he invites me to. So I want to pray for you. Jesus, thank you for your words. And thank you for the invitation to come up the mountain with you and to hear your words. Lord, will we be people that hear what it is you have to say to us? Would we be people that allow your spirit 
to move in our hearts, in our minds, that we would think differently, that we would feel differently. And God, would we be people that love you with our actions, with our words, that put this into practice, that discern what it is that you're saying to us, and we live accordingly. So would you come, Holy Spirit, make this real for us. Give us the determination and the strength to walk it out, to live it out. Come, Holy Spirit.